we now have a Twitter account. You can follow us using at ImaginaryPod to hear about all the upcoming episodes and some behind-the-scenes tidbits as well. There are over 550 million firearms in worldwide circulation. That's one firearm for every 12 people on the planet. The only question is, how do we arm the other 11? Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of the Imaginary Movie Podcast, a podcast in which we watch a movie and then we talk about it. My name's David. I'm Sam. And I'm Ross. Welcome all. This week, we watched 2005 film Lord of War. Yeah, the film I really like. Uh, It's really good, a a, a kind of crime drama about a gunrunner. Well, it's kind of funny as well. It's kind of like a black humour to this, isn't it? It's one of it's one of Nick Cage's sort of uh, right in his wheelhouse net, where you get a little bit of crazy Cage at certain points, but you know the rest of the time it's sort of like you know it's nice and calm. But it's it's an incredibly entertaining movie. Absolutely. Um, so let's start off as we always do. Sam, will you read us a plot summary? Sure. An arms dealer confronts the morality of his work as he's being chased by an Interpol agent, which is. Nice and succinct, I think. Not totally accurate, but we can get into that, I think. Yeah. I mean, um, that, I mean you know, it, it's more accurate than last week's reading uh, from uh, from Mortal Kombat. That that, read, that that to me suggests that this person actually watched the movie. What, actually watched the film? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's fair, that's fair. What did we, what did we think then generally of this film? We're, we're, all, we're all agreement that it's a good one. Yeah, so I watched this. Um, I, I would, I would definitely didn't see it in the cinema, but um, you know the sort of late late aughts, uh, and, and I really liked it. And I'm, I've probably seen it again since then because I'm a bit of a cage head, um, which we'll definitely get into. Um, and and this is kind of an odd role for Nicolas Cage, where he's not really hamming it up in this. He's kind of playing it straight, which is really bizarre. But there's occasional moments of him going totally batshit, but it's very restrained. Um, I enjoyed it then, and I re- we watched it this for this. Um, I, I really enjoyed it again. I, re- I was really worried it wouldn't hold up, but but it kind of did. It's a solid movie. Yeah, and I think it's one of those films where it could easily it could easily age really really poorly, couldn't it? Um, just some of the subject matter and the kind of context that it was released in as well. You know, like you you you're right in the midst of the war on terror and all that stuff, and there's very much. Some some very early two thousand or mid two thousand themes going on, um, but yeah, I think this is this is a this is a well made movie with something to say, which is nice nice to have that. Definitely, it's uh, it, it, it the entertainment derives from result because it's you know gun running you know <laughs> I, I I'm I'm guessing you guys haven't done it but it's such a fascinating sort of concept that you know that not many people would be too familiar with. Uh, and so, like the, you know, the opening scenes of the movie, you know, it's just it, it's it's an incredibly fascinating sort of look into like how these things are done, you know, and how a how a gun runner, gun runner, gun runner like starts off his business. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, I'm not sure how true to life that that one aspect of it is, but it's sure. you know, it is kind of interesting. I, I I for me, I'll save it actually. Let's let's start talking about the cast because otherwise we're just going to splurge about this film for forty minutes and not. <laughs> actually talk about it <laughs> so nicholas cage he's our he's our main character and the cagester yeah so um, general thoughts i don't know what to think of nicholas cage sometimes i think 
wow, he is a terrible actor who should not be in movies, and why is he? Why does he keep getting cast? And who is he? Who you know? Who is he paying to to be in so many films? And then occasionally you you see him in a film, and he's actually brilliant, <laughs> like like properly brilliant. And I think he he seems to either pick the wrong roles or do something where he ends up being in loads of dross. But the films that he that he he, he kind of gets right, he gets really right. And that's and I think this is one where he's just perfect for this, absolutely perfect. Yeah, I I completely agree. And it's like like you said, Sam. It's, it's sometimes you can't you can't really peg Cage, you know, for you know, as as a is he good? Is he is he entertainingly bad or frustratingly good? What is he? You know, where where do you categorize him? Um, there is but, a whole community episode about this. I know which that's what I'm really explains of. it better than we are doing, but it's he's an enigma. Truly. Um, um, films that I like, yeah. I like The Rock. Um, with I actually watched that recently. Yeah, yeah, which is a great, it's a great Jerry Bruckheimer picture. Just you know, over the top, ridiculous. Where, where he plays that my favorite, one of my favorite names of a character, which is Stanley Goodspeed. Goodspeed, yeah. <laughs> it's like hero protagonist, you know, like he, he really yeah. is. Uh, it's just, it's just brilliant. But he's really good in that. Obviously, Raising Arizona, which is like I think his his craziest of crazy um nicholas nicholas cage roles and then face, face off, off. Well. face off yeah that's a really oh. another classic cage movie yeah yeah i mean yeah. i kind of agree with you two in terms of like i think i probably like nicholas cage more i enjoy nicholas cage when he's good i enjoy him when he's bad i especially enjoy him when he doesn't know if he's good or bad um you know films like face off where he's he's hamming it up to such an extreme level that's extreme I, cage that, that it is. really is and i kind of i love that and i also really liked this film and like you know really much more sedate like actually doing acting cage um and and kind of everything in between i can't remember the name of it but there's this um, film he made in the sort of late 80s where he plays a guy who thinks he's been bitten by a vampire but it turns out it was all imaginary or was it and it's basically just him in front of a camera like doing weird stuff for two hours and it's amazing it's a terrible film don't watch it which will be difficult because i haven't told the name but you know at the same time i loved it because i just love that sort of he's got this real energy of overacting even when he's asleep in front of the camera there's this energy energy to him and and i kind of just enjoy that no matter what role yeah for sure obviously you haven't seen ghost rider i have uh that's a bad comic book movie and that's all i shall say about that Moving on. That'll be on the list to do at some point, I think. <laughs> and so his performance in this film, I think, is, again, is one of those, like, you can't quite put your finger on why it's good, but it really is good. It's sincere, and it's kind of... And I don't know if it's the voiceover, because there's a voiceover throughout this movie from Nicolas Cage, which generally I don't really like voiceovers. I think they're, like, a lazy film um, technique to get around... Crotch plot however in this i think it works so well and i think so much of the characterization comes from that voiceover so much of what he's doing is less about what's on the screen and more about what he's telling you as you're watching something else i think it, it really leans on nicholas cage's strength um in terms of being able to sell particular lines and not necessarily as a character actor if that makes sense yeah absolutely and he kind of I couldn't help but watching this again in, in, in the view of doing the podcast, I couldn't help but compare this narration to Goodfellas. Mm. Which, yes. You know, 
it's kind of like the other outstanding example of of this kind of narration where you're telling a story, but it's not necessarily like, and they all lived happily ever after. Do you know what I mean? And it's especially in this film where it, it's not really like a it's it's a, it's a snapshot. It's a, and then I continue to sell guns. <laughs> you know, and it's as far I back think, as I can remember. I always wanted to be an arms dealer. <laughs> as far back as I can remember, I always <laughs> want. Well done. My um, father was an arm dealer. My father's father was an arms dealer. <laughs> His father was a dancer. <laughs> That's a quote from Goodfellas, if you don't know. So um, I think there's, there's, yeah, there's a lot to be said in Nicolas Cage, and I think he, I think he's one of, it's probably one of those rare actors that, you know, is has the ability to hold a movie like this and to really keep things on track. And, and I think you know th- that's why he gets so much work, and that's why he is one of the biggest, you know, one of the biggest action stars is because he can pull off this movie, you know, largely by himself, and that's. That's not that's not an easy thing to do at all. No, at all, you're absolutely right, and I'm sure we will continue to talk about Nick Cage throughout this. <laughs> yes, but um, let's but talk let's about touch Bridget. Touch on the rest of the cast, shall we? Yeah, Bridget Monaghan, who plays um, Nick Cage, is love interest, and she is a. It's his his wife. Yeah, she's a, she's a um, a model who Nick Cage kind of spends spends a lot of the time trying to scams he scams her yes yes he pretends to be a billionaire and then they fall in love and then she becomes the mob wife as it were of of this arms dealer um and kind of eventually is part of his downfall and i yeah i i think she's underutilized in this film as often so many female characters are they're just not really given that much to do and, you know, she's kind of left in the house to rot a little bit, which is kind of what the character's there for, too. But, yeah, I wish I wish we'd seen more of her, really, in this and, and seen her... I just I just think it's kind of like wasted real estate. There's, there's this character that they, they, you know, they do spend some time building up this characterization, and she does have her sort of moment at the end of the film, but she really lacks any actual agency in any of that. Yeah, you know. So like, we'll talk about the conclusion here. So basically, the very last bit is that Nick Cage is arrested because the um, Interpol agent who's chasing him followed his wife to his his lockup, and that's where they got all the evidence to sort of like nail him. But in my memory, I thought that she'd gone to the police and told them about the lockup. But Ethan Hawke very clearly tells Nick Cage that that's not what happened, yeah. and I think that kind of robs that character of some sort of morality. In that, if she had had the agency to find that, then to go to you know Hawk and say, you know, my husband's an arms dealer, you know, this isn't right, you know, here's all the evidence you need, that kind of would have been like a nice moment for that character in terms of a satisfying arc. But instead, she just finds it and is like, oh yeah, my husband's been lying to me this whole time, great, and she's out of the movie. Time to skedaddle. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I would. I would argue that apart from when he uh, sort of he left her because he does say when he's in custody like oh my wife's just my wife and son's just left me the the strongest impact like she had on nick cage's character was when he was sort of pining after her when he saw her in posters when he went to different countries and like it's sort of it's sort of disappointing that that character that that's that's when she had the most impact when they didn't even have any interaction and he was just it's a really good point yeah when she was yeah. just an idea mm-hmm. That's that. He's a really good point, Ross, and and because it's kind of like the first half of this film is him being like she's. She, in fact, she isn't she the first person you see on the screen. I think it might be. Yeah, she's like in a. She's on a. She's a beauty queen in the car. I think that's where we sort of pan in after the bullet cam thing. And she, uh, Bridget Monahan, she's 
She's in quite a few things. iRobot's the thing that I recognized the first right away. I was like, oh, yeah, she plays along, uh, Will Smith alongside that as a scientist. Um, yeah. There's a film we should do because that's a that's got some interesting uh, production trivia. But not a massive um, back catalogue. Not loads of starring roles. So in terms of... So this movie's got like a, a set of various different plots that run through it and they're all kind of concurrent. Um Nicholas Cage is the B plot. Is the A sorry the A plot? The B plot is probably um, Jared Leto. Le- uh, Leto. Jared Leto. Leto, I think. Leto. 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 It's Leto, isn't it? Uh, let's not argue about this one. <laughs> he and he plays he plays Nicholas Cage's brother. Yes, uh, Vit- Vitali. I really like that character. I I thought he was it was genuinely portrayed. Um, also, side note. The most dazzling eyes. And oh yeah, that's that's it's not kind of really something. To be honest, <laughs> I was like, I was like, my god, this guy's gorgeous. But <laughs> that's that's by the by. Am but, I gay? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like, wait a minute, I'm getting feelings. No, um, but yeah, I mean that, that character sort of like arc. Uh, you know, I, you know, I did feel for him, and you know, because we all have that sort of member in the family who's like, Jesus, when you ever get a grip, <laughs> and do, he yes. and and he he knows that as well. Like he knows. Yeah. He, he has that so role, and there's that he's sort kind of, of self. like he's so, sorry, fill in a bit. He's kind of like the younger brother, and he's a bit of a drug addict, and he's a bit of like he's you know has a lot of girlfriends, and he's a bit of a loose cannon. It's kind of they're not girlfriends, the Dave. They're not girlfriends. I'm, I'm being I'm being uh, polite, Ross. You know, right? Okay. He, like he has a lot of girlfriends is something you know you say to the parents. You're like, oh yeah, he has a lot of girlfriends. Not he sleeps with a lot of whores. <laughs> but the, their relationship, <laughs> Nicholas Cage and and, um, and Gerald. Uh, Leto, he ends. They end up being really quite. Um, it's quite the kind of core of the movie, and so I think that's the kind of B plot, isn't it? The the relationship between those two, and it often ends up Nicolas Cage uh, putting him into rehab, or um, yeah, or this. You know that he comes along on some of the arms deals, but that starts to unravel as the film progresses, um, and there's there's kind of quite a lot of tension between those two characters as well as well as a lot of affection, and love, and it's kind of the big. It's probably the big kind of romance of the movie is the two brothers. Those two really obviously have a clear affection for each other um, in a way that you you kind of get with a wife, but not so much. Um, but I, I like I like his performance actually. I think it's really it's pretty well observed, and there's a lot of nice subtleties in it as well. Um, obviously, his eyes as well, Ross. Yeah, <laughs> I would say I would agree. You. But just one last thing on how he looks, like. If you're casting Nicolas Cage's brother, you can't get a potato-looking motherfucker. Honestly, like, like I don't mean to talk down. I think Nicolas Cage is a perfectly fine-looking man, but you know he's he's not on the same level as as Jared uh, Leto. Um, yeah, y- y- if you're gonna be his brother, you always got to be the better-looking one because, like, if you're not, then you're gonna be one ugly-looking boy. <laughs> exactly, um, but I like his performance in this. I think he's a good actor generally, um, and I think he's good in this. And I think maybe. To me, watching this film kind of feels like his role and the wife's role are kind of very much cut down, you know, and I'm not sure it to be replaced by what, but there are vast bits of the movie that the brother really isn't in it, and he kind of, like, comes back in as a plot device in the third act for me. Yeah. Um, And maybe they could have done more with that and maybe had more of, like, a you know, an emotional core there, whereas, you know, rather than trying to split it between him and the wife and really kind of leaving it neither. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I think it's. I think he kind of has to be absent a little bit though, because it's the it's the point of the character is to be, you know, on the run and fleeting and not really, not really there, not really present in the same way um, in, in in Cage's life that he is throughout. You know, in in, in other yeah, characters. Yeah, I mean, so. yeah, I think it's to be shown that he can't that he can't be trusted really, and I don't mean that in a nefarious way. I mean. That you know, his, his over, unreliable, his, yeah, yeah. His his dependency is that strong, and it's taken him over because but I maybe I need. Go on. I was I was just going to point out because I remember watching it last night, and I was texting you guys, and the, you know when he brings him to rehab, and I messaged you guys and said I don't remember the rehab scene being this early, and then <laughs> and then like twenty minutes later he's dropping him off at rehab again. It's like oh yeah, that's why. So like, and I think that's you know that helps sort of backs up the sort of idea yeah. that he he cannot be brought on these runs anymore. I get that, but kind of like, because obviously this character gets killed and he's the only major character who gets, you know, murdered um, towards the end in kind of like a, you know, a morality. He's trying to, like, he dies to try and save Nicolas Cage's soul. It's kind of like what the film's stabbing at, isn't it? If you guys would agree. Hmm, yeah. Um, but he, yeah, he's a kind of, mor- he's he's a moral centre. Uh, kind of, but like, but what I, could, what I couldn't do with is to establish why Cage would would go to him and be like, I really need your help. I kind of need maybe one scene in the first or second act where, you know, he does something that really saves Cage's life. Do you know what I mean? Some really clear sort of moment where, you know, it's shown that him That he has capability. Exactly, and that he is a man who you would want watching your back. And and they kind of they give you sprinklings of like oh maybe he has a gun all the time and he's brandishing at all sorts of people but like I kind of need a definitive scene that says that to us the audience so that we then understand Cage's motivation later on to say you know I'm doing one last deal and my wife isn't to know our parents aren't to know but you know if I could choose anyone I'd have you be at my back and then it lends that would lend so much more emotional weight to the following sort of scenes. I mean, there are there is one or two scenes where they show uh, Vitali as the sort of you know the, the capable backup, but I do agree with you, Dave, that they should have done at least one more where he, it's where he's impressive. Essentially, there, there was one scene where yeah. uh, you know where Nick Cage's character uh, is, Yuri is starting off at the start, uh, so yeah, he approaches uh, uh, a gun runner who's been in it for a long time, a guy uh, by the name Weiss, uh, and he goes to approach him and obviously he's got sort of bodyguards to sort of dissuade any people who come on to him. And then Vitaly sort of like moves one of the bodyguards to one side, but it was more with charm than actual force. So he shows a bit of capability then, but I, that, like, like you said, Dave, there's no, there was no sort of defining scene where you yeah. sh- where it shows that Vitaly is where, why Nick Cage's character would need Exactly. Him. And audiences are stupid and, and you can't ask them to dig for that. Mm. And that's maybe what this film does in that respect. It maybe doesn't make it clear enough. What they do 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 though is um, set up his him as a kind of moral barometer because at the very start of the film they're they're walking out of a deal and they're walking along and there's suddenly gunshots coming through a wall. Yeah. And 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 Yuri um, Jarolito manages to, to have a peek through the wall and sees that basically they're executing children. Um, it's, you know they're they're in they're in Africa somewhere and and it's. It's really, you know, it's quite an alarming scene, and uh, Nicholas Cage says, you know, it's not our business, and, and moves him on, and that's the line, and he and he complies, he moves on, and then obviously later on in, in at the very end of the movie, that's one of the one of the kind of the the, the crescendo of that moral, um, 
dilemma is that he says I can't do it anymore. You know, they're on they're on that final deal, and he says I can't I can't sell these people the money because they're going to go and massacre, you know, this this village. Um, so you you do see that you you get the setup and payoff, but yeah, I agree that there could be a little bit more just to give him a, a role, a bit more of a purpose. But obviously, he's there to kind of counteract the immorality of of Nicolas Cage's character. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it, I think what we get is fine. I think you know it's satisfying in its own way. And that's pretty much the main cast. We've, we you mentioned um, Weiss, who's the kind of rival um, gunrunner. We talked about. Have we talked about Ethan Hawke yet? Oh yeah, Ethan Hawke. <laughs> oh yeah, he's in this movie. Well, this right. So that sets up that sets up a very sets up, it's, it's quite poignant actually because Ethan Hawke. Fun fact: that's exactly what the casting director said. Yes. Oh yeah, Ethan Hawke. <laughs> oh yeah, Ethan Hawke <laughs> plays the Interpol um, kind of uh, police officer who's trying to catch Nicolas Cage, and we see him throughout the movie. And I think I forgot him because you know. He's pretty underutilized, as in he doesn't even get that much screen time. And I and I and I really like Ethan Hawke, and I think it's a shame that they didn't they didn't do more with him. I, I don't really I understand. Think, and maybe it's a, I think they didn't know what to do with the character. I think that if you have him in a lot more scenes and nearly catching Yuri and who's Cage's character and you know busting up more arms deals, you kind of you take away some of that sheen of of Cage being wildly successful and cleverer than everyone else, and you kind of take away that Wild West feel, and you also then maybe turn it into much more of a catch me if you can sort of thing. Yeah. That you know, and it, that's dif- a different movie than what they were trying to do. I think. Yeah, but I, I think. Mean, he, he, sorry, Ross, go on. He, I, I was just going to say because I think, well, I, it, it's not sort of really poignant uh, topic you're discussing, but. Uh, it was that that Ethan Hawke had one of the best sort of like lines in the movie, or one of the most uh, sort of lines that resonated with me the most, where where he's uh, where he's arrested, you know, Nick Cage in like that African sort of desert, and you know he's, he's basically sort of I'm paraphrasing here, but he says essentially that you know the the real weapons of mass destruction, you know, are these small arms that you're running, you know, they kill more people every day than like you know any of the, you know the nukes sit in the silos. These are the things that are killing people day in day out. Um, but that's just for me personally that line sort of it, it struck me so well because I was like oh my goodness you know and it's sort of like a realization because like around that time as well in 2005 you know everything was thrown like the term thrown around like WMDs WMDs the Iraq War yeah uh, but I just think you know like and that movie references that and they're saying they're not the WMDs these things are yeah yeah and this film does a good job of that I think hanging a lantern and, and really outlining like you know because maybe there are global media isn't as good at you know pointing out all of the horrible genocides and wars that are taking place in Africa um that maybe this film goes a long way to maybe sort of hanging a lantern on some of the atrocities that happened and are still happening um, I, I think it's a good in point a good way yeah I think it's a good point about the the context in which it was released you know 2005 we've we've got you know, we're, we're so close. We're in the to, midst of Bush's oil wars. Yeah, we're so close to nine eleven. We're so close to that real, that real shift, yep. that real end of the nineties, end of that glorious period for America. You know, where you're coming into this is the reality. You've got people taking off their shoes in airports, and and then, and I think that was yep. that's almost like framed as 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 a very American trauma. All of that. But yeah, well, there's there is a line in here about Bin Laden. So um... hold on, hold on. But but <laughs> but the, the, I think what's forgotten is that all of this stuff is happening around the world. And you know, yes, it's difficult for 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 America to be going through this. But 
look at all the other shit that's going on and look at all the other shit that basically the US is, is, has been responsible for. Um, and I think it really, it's probably not a very well-received message at this point, you know, when people were... Well, it's holding up a mirror, isn't it? And you know, Yeah, absolutely it is. And there's some production stuff, you know, that kind of backs it up as well. Yeah, which I'm sure we'll get yes. into. But, um, so the line about Bin Laden is that uh, Nicolas Cage says that um, he goes, oh, and I never actually sold to, to Bin Laden. Um, and he goes, not on any moral grounds. Uh, um, he was just known for writing bad checks at the time. And that's yeah, kind of like a, a funny time. little, like, again, underlying that sort of moral thing. It's 2005, and this Amer- American, for all intents and purposes, is saying, like, oh, yeah, I'd have sold arms to Bin Laden. <laughs> If yeah, he yeah. could have paid, yeah, and and I think that's kind of like that. <laughs> oh yeah, morals don't exist in this sort of world where you know arms dealing is like, you know, it's just a non-fact. Should we talk about some of the production or where this film kind of came from? Because um, it, it's it says at the end, and I think it's a bit of a stretch. It says at the end, this is this film is based on actual events, to which you would go away thinking, oh, this was a real person, and all of these True things story. happened. Um, which is not true. And what is what is true, though, is that it's it's kind of an amalgamation of various different events and various different people brought together in a very entertaining way. And I think that, you know, that's fine. That's OK. I, I like that. I like the kind of um, loose interpretation. And I think what it what it does do really well, it kind of, as, as you say, it's, it's a mirror back onto all of the the, the kind of, a you know, the the role of the arms dealing and and I, uh, and I think you could criticize it however in that it, it's it's kind of like personalizes it it puts all of the bad things that are happening onto this horrible man um in Nicolas Cage and I think it maybe misses some of the broader context in that you know the United States of America is doing this and it does mention that at the end but <clears throat> really I think there's it's trying to tell it's maybe trying to tell a bigger story and it doesn't quite achieve that in some ways you can see the seeds of it and who the because i'm sure I'm, I'm not sure you looked at this maybe this deeply ross but the arms dealers which are the yuri character kinnick cage's character are based on are kind of like it's five different um, people isn't it yeah but mm-hmm. a couple of them were like cia fronts um which this film does touch on that basically yeah. like they existed to sell weapons to the enemies of America's enemies or to topple, you know, democratically elected governments or whatever, the real people that is. And it's kind of like the film kind of touches on that, but for me maybe it doesn't go quite far enough. But a lot of the other stuff that, you know, that they take from real life is quite interesting. There's sort of like the Soviet connection and, yeah. and a few other things. I think you would have seen that basically, you know, this would have been audience tested. And again, this is purely conjecture on my part, but I think if you... If you were sort of like, you know, showing America, you know, basically this is what you guys actually get up to. I don't, you know, I don't think it maybe would have done that well, or even if it would have done that well with test audiences. So well, whether they knew that in advance, I think they would have sort of just more hinted at it rather than basically saying, "You guys are dicks." Here's why. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure there's um, there's a real reason for that. I'm sure it's on the t- you've been itching to tell us this bit of trivia, Sam, um, about the production. Right, yeah. So, I mean, and I think, yeah, so we've got this film, it's coming out of, you know, it's obviously about the American involvement or the Western involvement in arms Capability. Yeah. And they obviously, they they tried to get this funded in the States and were unsuccessful. They couldn't get 
a, a nobody know, wanted to a touch studio this. to pick it up, and I think wow. so they had to go international. And then even when you look at the box office receipts, it, I think it cost was it fifty million to make um, something like that, which yeah, is you know quite cheap. Yeah, well, uh, quite expensive. Yeah, I, I was going to say it's you know it's, it's quite expensive in some ways. I guess cheap for the scale of it and what they managed to do, but it only grossed seventy odd million, seventy five or something like that. So yeah. I think. Again, maybe if if this was released in 2010, you'd have you'd have a very maybe a different time, a different reception, and much more of a kind of you know people are a bit more woke. I think maybe to that stuff, but yeah. in the midst I of think, the war I think on the, terror, the, the marketing message would have been a lot different, wouldn't it? Like if it came out in 2010, you could maybe have a a, a lot more poignant sort of well, just, marketing. You've got like, you've got that distance bet- from 9/11, which is like yeah. we talked on the podcast before, Ross, like how big an event in shaping kind of like american culture especially that was especially you know within two or three you know three or four years of it um Mm -hmm. and even though this film is looking back to the 80s and the 90s it's kind of like you know maybe it's like you said it's holding that mirror up and it's been like oh actually i don't want to go to the cinema and learn about how my country is participating in you know supplying arms so that people can commit genocide and so maybe that's why this only made 70 million at box office Mm, yeah, the, which um, for a big budget film starring Nick Cage is not a lot. Yeah, but but it fo- it follows it follows the in terms of the director um, uh, Andrew Nichol, who he he's he's you know a very very well regarded director and has got some good films um, under his belt. Gattaca, Gattaca, great movie. Um, the Host as well, which is which I think I've seen, and I think he he's got. Um, He's got that real ability to to write poignant films and to have so much of of the um, to, to to shine back onto the audience. He also, I think, co-wrote or wrote the Truman Show. Yeah, he wrote the Truman Show, and I think he it, wrote and co-produced. Yeah, yeah, which earned him um, an Academy Award. So, mm-hmm. you know that that to me is one of the best movies about shining the mirror back on the audience almost literally in some ways in some you know in terms of people watching people watching tv and i think he's he's got that real kind of um he's got that real edge for satire and this film yeah. is is a top-notch satire that manages to do that but again most satire requires the audience to be kind of in on a joke and to have a have enough of an awareness of what's happening to know that it's a joke because you could kind of come away from this film thinking, oh, poor Nicolas Cage, he's just trying to he's just trying to do his job, you know. And, and I think that there's 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 a kind of subtlety and nuance which is maybe easy to miss or is just not really that interesting to look at in the first place, as you say, for most audiences. Potentially, and I think this film does do a, a pretty thorough job of shying away from directly depicting the U.S. military in a negative light. Um, well, there is there is that sort of that faceless general, isn't it? Who sort of bails them out each time, and like they have that bit of the you know that same scene with Cage and Ethan Hawke at the very end, where you know Nicholas Cage is is in custody. It's a wonderful, it's, wonderful speech. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, exactly. And he basically sort of points out to Ethan, "I'm going to be let go. Here's why." And he essentially sort of like points out because I, you know, I arm the enemies of America's enemies. Yeah, and, and he has a paper know, with pa- him as well, and he says, yeah. you know look who we're at war with you know america can't supply these people with weapons but i can exactly is he the is he the um is he the 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 colonel who yeah he's based on the one that's based on oliver north 
yeah, yeah. that's right. Yes, Who's yes. Played by Donald Sutherland, I think. And his name in the, his, his on-screen name is um, General Southland or something. And it's like a it's a reference to it. A bit pretty ham-fisted. Oliver Southern is it? Is he played by? I don't know if Donald Sutherland's in it. Is he? I don't know, man. Um, maybe I'm going mad. No, I think you are. But anyway, he's uh, he's yeah he's kind of in that, and that's a nice little reference to Oliver North. Oliver North, obviously, Oliver North and Oliver South uh, being um, being a, a, a nice little nice Clever. little fun. Yeah. So Andrew Nichol, good job, and Gattaca is one hundred percent a film we should do because I love that movie. That's brilliant. Oh yeah, one of my favourite movies. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, Ross. Uma Thurman in. Uh... What's his face? Oh, wow! Sign me up. What's his face? <laughs> and what's his uh, face? Ethan Hawke. No, I, I, Ethan Hawke. And Jude Law. Oh wow! Um, anyway, oh, anyway, Hawk. this isn't the this isn't the recommending other movies podcast. Um, mm. Reel us back in here. Well, I'll I'll just uh, very quickly. You know, when we were talking about like uh, uh, production sort of elements, just when I was looking into this, uh, Sam and you talking about the costs and stuff, I was I was reading about this, and there's a scene in the movie where you know the the the, <clears throat> the the iron curtain has fallen essentially, and so the, you know this is uh, Orlov's great chance to get you know his hands on some merchandise to sell, and he gets into this uh, warehouse, his uncle's warehouse, and basically you know, there's, there's this warehouse full of the AK-47 Kalashnikov, and basically uh, essentially so like all those guns you see in that room, they're actually real guns, <laughs> and I was reading the reason, and I said basically because it was cheaper to use them than to get prop guns. And I just, it just reminded me of when we were talking last week about, you know, the the movie The Crow, and I said, how, you know, why couldn't they get a prop gun? They said, well, it's cheaper to get a real gun. Like, how is it cheaper? And again, it's cheaper to get a fake version of yeah. the real thing than it is to have the real thing, real killing utensils. Yeah. So, this is quite a cool, like, leads into quite a cool bit of trivia, Ross, because I'm sure you read as well. So yeah. They actually, there were three thousand rifles they bought. Um, <laughs> And it's kind of like a weird sort of thing that happens in films sometimes where they bought all of these guns from an arms dealer, obviously, on the proviso that they would use them for shooting and then sell them back at a discount. And I, that's kind Shooting of as in recording. Not shooting as in recording, shooting. yeah. yeah. Um, and then, so they finished filming, sorry, and then they would sell them back to the arms dealer at a, you know, at you know, at cost, they'd lose money on it, but it would be cheaper than renting or you know, buying prop guns. guns. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they knew an arms dealer, and like, and obviously, to, you know, behind a film like this, that with the research, they obviously would. Uh, but there's also a f- couple of scenes in this film with loads and loads of tanks. Yes, and they, they look really good, and the reason is because they're real tanks. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't this isn't a set. These aren't props. These are real tanks. Um, which they borrowed from said arms dealer, and um, they had to notify um, NATO, NATO, so that NATO wouldn't think it was a staging area for an invasion. That's amazing. Uh, which is so they could get these shots, basically. And it's that is an insane. Do you know what I want? Trivia. Do you know what I want? I'm not done, Sam. I'm not done. All right. Well, just, just on, on. on to that point, though. I want to go to work and I have to inform NATO. About my work. That's what I want in life. I want to. I want to. I want to tell people that I'm not starting a war, and for everyone to be like, "All right, that's fine." I really. That's you my, know what? That's an Sam, ambition. 
I'm going to argue there. And I'm going to say, you know what? That novelty would wear off very, very quickly. <laughs> in, my, in, in my line of work, I have to deal with like some licensing boards. And at first, you're like, yeah, I've got to tell them about, you know, there's shooting in it. And you're like, oh, God. Now they're just, and now you're like, okay, well, there's, there's some playful stuff in it. No, no, you have to do this and red tape and red tape. I'm telling you. The novelty wears off. Yeah, okay. It'd be cool, like the first because it's just bureaucracy at the end of the day. Isn't yeah. It? yeah, the first three yeah. phone calls to NATO, you're like, yeah, I've called NATO, and then you're like, okay, I spoke to Steve last week. Steve at NATO told me to get in touch with Susan <laughs> from accounting. Steve at NATO, can this be a like podcast <laughs> character? Steve at NATO. Steve, Steve, <laughs> Steve-o! Steve, Steve, I can see um, Dave. Yeah. So these tanks. Um, this, so not only did they have to do all of this. Um, basically, they had a really short schedule to film with the tanks because they'd already been sold. <laughs> wow! To presumably right, yeah. a country to conduct war, which is also kind of like shit. It kind of makes it all very real, doesn't it? And it's uh, maybe highlighting that you know there are a lot of arms dealers. Most arm dealers operate completely legitimately and legally, and and that's kind of terrifying. You know, mm-hmm. you shouldn't be able to buy a tank <laughs> at all. You'd think so, wouldn't you? You'd think, you'd think um, buying a tank would be like, oh, that's really, really difficult and you'd have to be on certain a certain list to get there. But no, you can be a studio and just buy a few, you know, a few hundred tanks. It's all good. It's well, honestly, let's, be clear. Like, let's be clear. The studio didn't buy the tanks. They just borrowed them. Yeah, they just yeah, borrowed them. There fair. you go. That's okay then. Fair well, is, there fair was, like, there's a rich history of this happening. I mean, the other film that springs to mind of like really terrifying reality of you know, armaments in movies is Apocalypse Now. Mm. Um, All right, which... yeah. That's because they really did invade um, Southeast Asia when, when they shot that film in the 70s. No, it's almost as bad though, Sam, um, is that uh, they filmed it in the Philippines and um, all of the ta- all of the helicopters, especially in the boats that you see in the film, um, were all in-service military um, vehicles and um, more than once, the uh, shoot was delayed because they would get a call basically saying, all right, Flight Squadron C needs to go on a mission. So they would take the helicopters back, repaint them again. They would fly out on a mission, i.e. to bomb and kill people, presumably. And then they'd be returned to the film crew Gosh. to be repainted again to be used for other shots. Plenty of time for Martin Sheen to take those drugs and then film it, though, to be fair. <laughs> you know, I mean, you'd need to. That's a, a nice segue, uh, the painting, into some of the scenes of the movie. Yeah, so let's talk about scenes we re- that we liked, I think. I think we're at that point, aren't we? Go, Ross. Um, well, j- j- starting off with just uh, the paint is uh, what what you pointed out yesterday, Sam. So, like, you know, when, he, when Nick Cage finally woos this woman and they're, they're taking a private jet back to America and he just basically he doesn't own the jet, he just managed to paint his name on, like, just in the nick of time. And you actually see the, like his name uh, in wet paint like run off as the plane begins to take off. It's a very cool shot, isn't it? Very effect. Mm. Like the effect is quite cool because like it's just the obviously the air of the plane starting to move. Yeah, exactly. There's an, uh, to, to another scene involving paint, um, and I like this in oh, movies. Yeah. I like this in movies where they they take something quite mundane. <laughs> where it's a cartoon. <laughs> well, well, more that they take something mundane. They take uh, they take something that isn't necessarily all about massive action and explosions and. And on high stakes, um, and countdowns. Yeah, but what they do is they take something mundane and they turn it into a really, really tense scene. So there's a bit when they're on the boat and they're being raided by um, Ethan Hawke, 
and you know the the, the little uh, the little boats coming up and they're trying to get around to the back of the ship so they can see the name of the ship and as this is happening Nick and Katie's shouting at some poor uh, sailor to <laughs> paint over the the existing name and paint on a new one um, and so when he ter- when when Ethan Hawke gets to the back of the ship he's like oh oh it's the wrong ship damn it um, and I think it's that, that it's quite clever to to take something as simple as that and turn it into a really really tense scene and then quite funny as well because you get obviously Ethan Hawke kind of has that. It's it's an important character moment for Cage as well because and, and the brother actually to be fair because um, they both have a little moment here and it's kind of Cage in the whole film is this him being like one step ahead and he's just that little bit cleverer than Hawke. And so he's, you know, just manages to evade him. And even though they both know he's an arms dealer and they both know what he's doing, um, he knows that Ethan Hawke's character won't break the law to catch him. And so that he, that gives him a lot of latitude to basically get out of any sort of criminality being caught at. Yeah. Well, um, to quote another incredible film, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. Yeah. Um, and, and basically, so like, uh, like Nick Cage even says, he know, like we both know I'm guilty of sin, but he won't break the law to... Bring me in, or something. You know, I'm paraphrasing again. Yeah, there's some cool moments about that though, and I kind of like that morality of Ethan Hawke in this. Um, kind of like um, Wolf of Wall Street, kind of has a similar sort of thing, where they kind of mock the the the, the, the sort of the FBI agent in that for being too straight laced to to break the law. You know, yes. and they kind of kind of like poke fun at it, and it's similar in this film where you know you're watching it and you're thinking like. You know, you're giving this big speech, but if you took out a gun and shot this guy in the head, guess what? He's not making any more arm de- arms deals, and you know, it's a net gain mm. for humanity. But he won't do it because his morality doesn't allow him to. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's even a scene sort of like you know, almost word for word depicting what you just said, Dave, where the, the, that uh, same African desert scene and like uh, like uh, another Interpol agent who's along with Ethan Hawke basically has a machete to Cage's neck. And he's like, no one will know. No one will know. Yeah. And he's like, and Nathan Hawk says, we'll know. <laughs> so like, like, like you just said, Dave, like even even with the option to just take them out instantly, no but witnesses. Do you know what's really cool though? And I'm, I'm sure I gushed about this last night. It's like <clears throat> you don't ever at any point root for Ethan Hawke's character, despite which is like a real and this this is kind of maybe an early example of like a really thoroughly thoroughly like workable antihero. Where Nick Cage's character is like over and over and over again tells you that he's the bad guy and that he does bad things and that he doesn't really regret any of them and and yet you then you don't really want him to be stopped. You don't want Ethan Hawke's character to succeed and catch him. Despite the fact that he's like obviously the hero of the movie. He's you know got these strong morals, he's a law enforcement officer and he wants to stop kids getting shot. I think part of that is because like in these sort of movies you know, like, you know, catch me if you can, that sort of thing. Uh, you don't need to root for them because, like, you know, as as a viewer, you know, you know, he's going he's gonna to get caught. You know, in, in, in movie land, these guys don't make it away for the, for the most part. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think, I don't think it needs to. I just think it does a good job of, like, you know, not making it feel like you should. It's clear cut. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of my favorite scenes is actually the very start of the movie. It's the kind of opening credits. Oh, I thought we were going to say that for last time. Oh, no, let's get into it now, because this is too good. It's too good. I love I love this opening credits. And for, any... for those of you who don't know... Yep. Oh, so go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go for ahead. those of you who don't know, this scene is called the life of a bullet scene. 
yeah, and basically we we see, um, we we follow the, bu- the the bullet, and we're kind of imagine there's a camera strapped to the back of one, and we see it, which f- is, seems like absolutely how they shot this, by the way. Yeah, it's not though. <laughs> yeah. it's not because I've got I've got I've got um, I've got trivia about this. Um, and what we see is we see the bullet from being made in the factory all the way through, all, you know, through the machines being quality checked, yeah, quality checked, being picked up, being handled, being put in a crate, you know, sent across the world, um, and then used, and then being tipped out onto the ground where people are picking it up, and then we finally see it being inserted into the gun and being shot, and then it through a child's head. through a child's head is the ending, which is. Mm. Um, Pretty grim, pretty grim. But yeah. it is a brilliant opening credits. Number one to have an opening credits, which is great because it's not something you have that much anymore. And number two to make it so entertaining and to tell so much of the story, you know, throughout well, it's, the film. Because this this bullet is a bullet that I think, from from recollection, it's made in a Soviet factory. It's shipped to a Soviet depot. It's then, you know, lost or stolen. And sold on to to you know various intermediaries before it gets to this, you know African civil war or whatever it is with watching, and that's kind of like a again really like jarring. It's like, you know, oh this is this is how this is how, this is how gun trafficking works. Yeah, I mean it, it's quite it's quite uh, good you mentioned that David. You know, obviously it's going from Russia to you know like the, the, these African countries because. In, in in the in the scenes, you know, at the very start, where you see the cr- the, the the crate in front of your bullet, it's actually uh, addressed to uh, like the ad- address of origin is actually uh, Odessa, Ukraine, which is you know so the sort of the bullet is depicting uh, Nick Nicholas Cage's character's origins, so yeah. going from Odessa and then heading over to you know to Russia, to Africa, things like that. And in terms of how they made this, it's quite clever and. Uh, a lot of it is just a camera um, placed low on the ground or on the conveyor belt, and then they added the bullets in most of the time. But mm-hmm. there's there's some there's some funny um, and there's actually a great article which I'll put in the show notes because it's really worth it is really worth reading. They talk about um, the bit at the end where the bullet is loaded into the gun, and I think it's um, one of the production uh, crew is saying they actually considered creating an oversized AK-47 so they could have a camera with a bullet on there and do it. Oh, wow. Yeah, but then they realised, really, no, it's cheaper just to make it with CGI, and it's 2005, so... I think it looks okay, though. I think it looks great. It does does hold up. It does hold up, um, like, like for CGI, because I was watching uh, the other night as well, uh, you know, uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine, um, and, like, a lot of the times where his... This is relevant, trust wow, me. Wow, you really didn't but, have anything to do then, eh? <laughs> so, like, a lot of his sort of claw action in, in that movie was, you know, like, the claws coming out was, you know, CGI. But watching it, like, you know, on my TV last night, I was like, Jesus, this is, you know, it's god-awful. And those movies are, like, uh, you know, the same And the CGI is bad, period. too. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, like, that, you know, they're of a similar time period, but the CGI in Lord of War, you know, of the, of the bullet being handled, it holds up a whole lot better than, you know, a, mo- a movie that would have had like a much larger budget like Wolverine. I think it's because it's such a, it's such a purposeful set piece that isn't mm-hmm. a fight scene. It's not, you know, animating stuff on top of loads of moving bodies. It's, you know, it, they, they, they're doing a job and they do it really, really well. 
And I think that's maybe because it's quite static in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that's why it holds up a bit better than the other stuff of that age. It, maybe. It, it also mirrors the kind of theme and tone of the movie as well in terms of it being quite, you know, there's, there's elements of black comedy in this and there's elements of of humour that run throughout the film. And I think this sets up that tone really, really well because you're like, well, this is a bit weird. And to seeing yeah. the bullet, fly, you know, it's quite, it's quite comical in some way, even just the way it's, it's shot. And I think, well, gu- guns are kind of guns and bullets in this film are really fetishized. In, in, you know, it kind of really walks that line of. I do think this film is ultimately saying that, you know, guns and arm dealing are rap bad. But there are a couple of times in this film where it's really on the edge of that line, where, you know, you could be forgiven for being like, wow, guns are really cool. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of yeah. that in this film of like, you know, I think, I think if you. Well, you, if you like watch this one film thing from that, that mindset, you could totally come away thinking this is a pro gun movie. Yeah, well, one scene I think Dave that supports your argument there is that scene where uh, it's it's in that warehouse where Nick Cage is talking about the Kalashnikov, and you would think that he is jerking off, to, to, you know, to, to this gun. He's saying like, you know, it's uh, the greatest gun ever made. It's on the <laughs> Russian coin. It's on a, you know an African country's flag. Uh, it never jams. You can shoot it under sand. You can shoot it under water. Never rusts. It's an incredible piece. Like, all right, we get it. It's, it's a gun, and you like it. Relax. It's a good Nick Cage, like doing his bit, sort of doing yeah. being Cage, you know. <clears throat> what, what was it you said? Like, you know, the number one export uh, out of Russia. Num- uh, shortly after then is caviar vodka. Uh, Suicidal novelist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. One thing's one thing's for sure. No one was lining up to buy their cars. <laughs> It's quite it's quite quippy in that way. It's quite like a like mm. and it's all Nick Cage, I think. All of the like really snappy and like memorable lines of this are the voiceover. Yeah. There's 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 an argument. Another line I like is um there are two types of tragedies in life. One is not getting your what you want, the other is getting it. And there's all these there's all these <laughs> it's, which is a nice line. I think maybe it's slightly overused. I think the the, the narration sometimes suffers from that like omnipresent um narrator and yeah it's a little bit too pleased with itself it's a bit too cute i think (laughs) sometimes Uh, and you're like okay like uh, well we didn't we didn't really need to have the narration in this scene we could have got rid of it and we could have just seen what was happening without um nick cage telling us or or at least giving us some you know quote with the line um so, but that's a small, it's a small quibble, really. You know. Well, it's not, it's not a perfect movie. I think this is a really good movie, but I don't think it's a really great movie. Well, you know? what else do we think is wrong with it then? What are the kind of down, the downsides? I think the humour of this is quite inconsistent. Um, that's, you know, because obviously Nick Cage is, is saying these quite zingy lines, not funny as such, but there's, there's some humour in the front end and towards the end as well, like, um, there's a, some some at the very beginning when he's sort of doing his voiceover and he's at the restaurant with his parents and he says, you know, um, oh Yuri Orlov isn't actually our name. Um, you know, there's a short period in history where, you know, it you know being, being, Jewish. being Jewish was you know was was a thing that helped you like get up the social ladder. So he says his family has been pretending to be Jewish for like four decades or something. And then when you sort of go in. And his dad's like, oh, is there pork in this? Oh, no, oh, there's fish in this. I can't eat this. Shellfish, yeah. Shellfish in this. I can't eat this. And then and then she goes, you're Catholic. And she goes, <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'm going to temple. And she goes, you go to temple more than the rabbi. And it's like this funny little thing where this you get this little window into the father's character who is obviously totally insane, but really committed to this bit. And I, I just find that really amusing. But 
it's kind of like an odd tone because that's kind of like the only really funny sort of, you know. I think it's the only scene the that's yeah. the only scene that's like, oh, you know, this is funny. Everyone's going to relate to this. This, you know, this, oh, these crazy old couple. I think a lot of the scenes that that are funny in this movie uh, are, 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 you know, are the scenes that are so sort of like. Uh, how do you say it? sort of like out of the ordinary you know like so like that scene surreal, where surreal yes they? thank you and that's where so the like humor that, is derived from whereas where you see yeah. the parents is kind of like it doesn't feel like it belongs in this film almost mm. it feels well, like, like you it know, belongs I mean, case, in my big fat greek wedding and not this yeah i mean like, you know case in point for like the surreal scenes that were humorous was the one sam pointed out you know you're hitting the back of the boat you know before interpol comes on to you uh, another one was like you know where they had to land the plane in the middle of an african field um, and, ba- and basically, you're the you know, best. Like, so you're the shit. The, you're the shit. You're the shit. You're the In shit. In fact, he graduated forty second yeah. out of forty third. <laughs> yeah. And basically, you know, like so they land and like the two pilots, you know, they they leg it and say, "Where are you going?" They said, "I'll oh, get to get away from evidence." Like, there's not going to be any evidence, and, you know. And then he opens up the back of the cargo plane and starts giving away all the stuff. Handing guns free. to just random passersby. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. So. The, the the element of the film that I really I'm not quite sure what I think of is is whether or not this film has like a convincing moral core, and obviously it's a film about arms dealing and it's it's you 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 see things from the side of the arms dealer. So number one, it mm-hmm. is trying it's trying to do something there. It's trying to subvert your um, your thinking in some way. And and at a surface level, it seems to be saying that selling guns is bad, and you see throughout the film the kind of negative um, results of that in terms of, you know, ch- child soldiers and and horrible atrocities and all this stuff. But then, on the other hand, it it, it maybe never really offers other in, other than in the last scene, it never really offers like the counterpoint to that. It never really says, oh. Um, well, it's what I'm saying. I'm trying to say that it, it exposes the, what arms dealing does, but it never really passes judgment on that. And I don't know if that's a bad thing or not. I'm, I'm not really sure. It never really says. I don't know if this. I don't know if this supports your argument or not, Sam. But there was one scene where, you know, Yuri Nick Cage comes comes home and he goes to kiss his son goodnight, and he, and he finds that his son has like a you know like a cowboy pistol cap gun, and so like you sort of get, and you know and he tosses it in the bin. And you sort of get like that. He he sort of sees the you know the, the down. It sort of suggests that he does see the you know the the horrible connotations of that guns. He, is he doesn't want to some subject it. Yeah. To, yeah, but not a lot of that gels with the rest of the movie. So like you know you know at the end where uh, you know where, where he has an opportunity to sort of like come clean or where you know his, you know he can he can live a clean life, but you know it, it draws him back in. So it doesn't always sort of. It, it, it's not consistent. I think I, is what I'm trying to say. I, I think I agree with Sam, and that it kind of it doesn't really. And I think he goes to lengths to not really be preachy, because it's mm-hmm. not what it's trying to say. If you know what I mean, this film isn't like a, you know, yo guns are bad. It's it's not really. It's kind of like message. It's more that you know, all these atrocities are being committed by essentially salesmen. I think that's maybe the like the truer commentary mm-hmm. here is that Nicolas Cage is just a man who has found a way to make money. He's not necessarily like we're not he's not shown to be outwardly very evil. He's not, you know, hurting people intentionally and 
you know, beating up yeah. women and, and murdering kids. He's just a man who understands that this is a very lucrative opportunity, and that's kind of more upsetting than if he were like a Bond villain. It's more anti-capitalist than necessarily anti-war is maybe what yeah. I'm going at. Like, the the you know, obviously it does say war is bad, and Amnesty International have highlighted it as one of their like, this is a, you know the, the the positive message of of the the, the impact of the arms trade. And I don't think 90... I think most people come away thinking that guns are bad. But what I think it misses is maybe that wider context. And again, it goes into a little bit by mentioning the role of of America and, and US and, and, and then in the final credits, um, it, the final kind of scenes, it has a, a bit of text on the screen that says, you know, UK... Um, US, US, France, France Russia and China. Yeah, are, are all the biggest arm dealers in the world and they're on the UN Security Council. So... But I just feel like that is tacked on at the end. And again, it personalises much of the problem with arms dealing through Nick, Nick, Nick Cage's character, but doesn't really then land the blow. It doesn't really take the hit against yeah. the broader um, geopolitical context or ramifications of... And I suspect that there's a really good reason for that, and that's that from a writing point of view, I think I think they maybe had the ending was maybe the first thing they had. Do, 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 you, know, do you know what I mean? I feel like the, the very end scene, that conclusion is kind of like what this film is based around. Yeah. And then the other scenes are like cool stories. I'm reducing this down, but like cool stories from the lives of the characters that this Nick Cage's character is based on. Like, yeah, they the used the frame scene, it, aren't they? The boat scene, you know, the scene in um, Liberia several scenes in Liberia, like those characters. I feel like that's all just, you know, a series of events that they thought were really interesting and highlighted various things that they put in the film. And then that's kind of tied together by this, the brother and the wife and, and this kind of like family aspect so that we can get to that conclusion. And that's maybe why it doesn't make a stronger statement is because it kind of just lacks that unity of, of, um, of uh, purpose. I would agree with that, yeah. And maybe that's a good choice, you know. Maybe, 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 maybe landing that blow would be overall. Maybe it would be too much, and you'd, you'd too preachy. Yeah, and I think actually, the kind of black comedy nature of the movie allows gives you the the, the latitude. I think to, to to maybe not have to. Do, I'm just not quite sure. I, I couldn't really and I tell. Think, I think know. it makes it a better movie. Actually, I I don't know if you agree, Sam, but I think that by sort of sitting, not sitting on the fence, but by kind of like being just a little bit more nuanced and and maybe not as not quite as outspoken not as political as it could have been it makes it's especially you know 15 years later it makes this a much more watchable film than if it was really firmly rooted in 2005 like anti-capitalist anti-war anti-gun sort of time i think maybe that would age worse yeah maybe that's something for a documentary rather than you know like a like a you know, an opinionated documentary rather than uh, a movie yeah. to deal with, yeah, perhaps. But uh, yeah, I, yeah. So I think, I think, I think there's the, maybe maybe some of the, the other thing that I'm not quite sure of is it's quite uneven in its pacing. Um, it, you know, it's two hours long, and I think there's maybe some things you could. Well, that's what I was saying, Sam, about it being like a series of cool scenes stitched together. Yeah. That you sometimes get with films, like a collection of short stories. Yeah, it's, it's, ane- just... it's anecdotes. These are anecdotes from this fictional character's life, essentially, aren't they? 
Yeah, but that's a fairly it's a fairly minor. You know, I I think overall you get what you you get a really a really strong movie that delivers that that sets up quite a lot and and pays off most of it and delivers it in a way that's really quite entertaining. Um, and that's maybe you know maybe should this be entertaining? Maybe not. But I think that's what it goes for. It goes for entertainment alongside a kind of hard hitting message. And that balance is maybe the kind of unevenness that that you see throughout. And I think generally it manages to get that right, you know, and then and then you could maybe criticise it a little bit for every now and again we have a scene where a child gets killed and and they use that as a kind of like emotional dead stop just to say, right, okay, but don't forget this is serious shit. Feel bad. I yeah. suppose, but I kind of liked that those scenes were present and I think that I remember writing down that not this sounds bad, but like the children getting shot was honestly a less jarring scene to me than the scene where um, the president of Liberia, or whoever he is, is like watching all of his child soldiers parade. I found that much more disturbing and much more jarring than, you know, all the people being murdered in this film. And I'm not entirely uh, sure why. I think it just it felt very real and that kind of uh, like... I th- yeah, well, I, th- I think that's sort of excusable, Dave, because... You know, you know. Presumably, when you see the sort of the lineup of the child soldiers, you know, you have the hat, you have the connotations that, you know, they are just that soldiers, and they're going to go out and kill, and you know, unfortunately, shoot, you know, shoot and kill people, and so it's it's having that, and like you know, and these are children, you know, at, at the end of the day as well. So yeah, but I think implying what, that is almost more powerful than showing you it. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not I'm I think, I, I think it's a good yeah. thing about this film. I really do. I, I, um, and, and I kind of like that there are those bits in it because it kind of regrounds you from enjoying this light jaunt with Nicolas Cage having sex mm-hmm. with sexy ladies, and there's a lot of that. Um, <clears throat> it kind of reminds you that, oh, actually, this is a film about an arms dealer and he isn't a good person because, you know, you know, arming people, you know, corrupt governments is not a good thing, and that kind of like just kind of brings you back into the theme of the film in quite a, quite a, quite a good way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think it, the fact that it gets it, the fact that there's enough to discuss there, I think, is probably what the film was after anyway. You know, it kind of gives you enough to take it either way. Um, although, again, you know, maybe there are people coming away from this thinking, "Wow, arms dealing's cool." How do I get into this? Hey, yeah. To be fair, Nicholas Cage and his brother are having sex with a lot of sexy ladies. They're doing a lot of drugs. They're drinking loads. It doesn't seem that bad, you know. <laughs> and it doesn't seem to have an adverse effect on them at all. No, he seems fine. Like, he seems just like normal Nicholas. Yeah, Cage. I turned off. Just, you know. I turned off after forty minutes, so I think that's. I think I. I watched enough. I watched enough of this. <laughs> All's well that ends well. <laughs> yeah, it was really weird when he stole that baby, but the rest of it was really, really good. <laughs> so, do we have much more to say on Lord of War? Is is there? Is there any kind of any big scenes that we liked, or any kind of major moments in the film? Um, not really. I kind of like we we touched on it, but I really like the time lapse of the plane being um, dismantled. Yeah, uh, I thought that was quite like a cool shot. Um, I I didn't love the like. Well, it was the magic wise white man voiceover telling us that Africa reuses everything and everything yes. goes back to the <laughs> earth was a bit like. This is something I can see Sean Connery saying in a film about the Zulu War. You know, it was it was it was essentially look how deep we are, guys. Hey, it's a mechanical thing, and it's being dismantled, much like 
uh, the things the way uh, an, a dead body. A dead well, honestly, yeah. I can be, see yeah. I can see Jim Cameron sat at home going say and using all of this for his Avatar film. Say <laughs> that that right, does touch seriously. That does touch on a wider point, and I don't, I don't know. I don't really want to go into it too much because I don't think it's there. But there is there is like a there is a funny you get a funny feeling about how some of the stuff in Sierra Leone is portrayed. Like there's a there's a savagery to the way that, that that all of that is portrayed, which I know is real, and I know that you know the Sierra Leone wars and, and much of Western Africa had you know incredible horrible atrocities, social problems as well. Though. Yeah, like yeah, and obviously, obviously ridiculous poverty. And I think again to go back to what we said previously, it, it maybe doesn't quite point the finger enough there. It points the finger at the people carrying out. The personal individual crimes and the massacres and whatever else but it, again it doesn't really make the connection between number one the role of you know rampant imperialism over the last 150 years but also the the ongoing context of of like american and and western involvement in in all these wars and I felt like earlier on you could have made that a bit more obvious in terms of oh yeah we want this guy to win we want we want the yeah. the, the 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 leader to be on top because you know he'll give us oil rights or something like that you know what I mean whatever it is and I think maybe it doesn't quite just it's not quite Land. delicate enough yet and and so what you end up with is oh look at these look at these quote unquote savages and look at what they're doing with all these guns rather than necessarily blaming Nicolas Cage or blaming the military industrial complex that exists to enable that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um I have another scene I want to talk about. I've yeah, a few. <laughs> um, if you got the time. I've got the time. Uh so is back to the when he's in I think he's in Sierra Leone and um he comes back to his hotel room from from somewhere and uh the the president's there with his son and they've got Ian home like tied to a chair. Uh, and evidently he's come to sort of he's come into the country to sell guns to somebody, and they know he's um, Nicholas Cage's enemy, so they've taken him. And uh, you kind of have this weird like um, the president like ghosts Nicholas Cage into shooting him in the head. It's very strange. Um, and then what follows that is like a really weird kind of trippy hallucinogenic scene in which we see. And the CG isn't great on this. <laughs> Ian home with a bullet through a hole in his head, and the cavity out the back as well, and kind of like a, a bunch of other weird stuff. And there's kind of like a this juxtaposition of um, someone tries to shoot Cage, and and we don't know if any of this is real or if it's all imagined. And and he sort of the gun jams, and he goes, "Oh, let me look at that." And he offers to take the gun and fix it. Yeah. So that he goes, this... oh, that, that doesn't usually happen, you know. Just yeah, cock it, and then he tries again, and then it jams again. Yeah, yeah, and it's this weird kind of like, and he kind of goes nowhere. This 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 little like uh, this little scenelet, and but it it really struck me as like, you know, when you're watching a film, you're like, this is from a different movie, and uh, but not in a bad way. I don't think it detracts, but it's kind of weird, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's 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 again, maybe that's where you know. A good a good edit, maybe cutting out ten or fifteen minutes here. Um, you might be able to do that and and not really lose much. Yeah, because they touch on some things here, but they don't really follow through. Like him murdering Ian Home is kind of like meant to be this really like interesting moral thing where he's offered an out. He's like you know, 
He's like, we're going to kill him together. I'm going to do this with you because I don't think, I think you want him dead, but I don't think you want to pull the trigger. And it's this interesting thing that's kind of like, it's this, this horribly evil dictator pointing out to Nicolas Cage that, you know, you think you're the good guy and you're not. And it's kind of like this interesting, like, moment where he needs Cage to admit that he is the bad guy, almost. Um, do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Because yeah. he says to him, "If you say, to, if you tell me to stop, we'll stop, and we'll let him go." Um, on Ian Home, I, I'm, I was surprised by how old Ian Home looked. They call him Beloche. Beloche in in two thousand two thousand five. Um, he, looked, he died last week, didn't he? Yeah, he did last week for us. Yeah, so I think it's 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 really and when when he died, I was like, "Oh my god, Ian Home!" And then I realised, yeah, he looked. You look pretty old and alien, like you know. What I mean, he's, in 1977, yeah, yeah, he's he's an old he was an old guy, and obviously quite a quite a sad end with I think Parkinson's or, um, yeah, some of that. So, but I, I again just such gravitas, you know. Every scene he's in, he's just he's just great. He's not he's not in this film a lot. Really, he's not. I think he's like a good antagonist for Cage, and he and he he lands and lands a few blows. Um, on him that uh, that are quite you know quite good, but yeah, I just there's I I just wanted to you know I like Ian Home I, I love him I love him in The Fifth Element which we need to do soon because that is one of my favourite mm-hmm. movies. If you guys would quit your that jobs and show. do four podcasts a day, <laughs> <laughs> we're a quad daily. Exactly, quad well, daily. Well, listeners, you know if you want to if you want us to have four podcasts a day, then you know what I'll do. You know demand. Yeah. Sign up to our Patreon. Patreon.com slash... Our imaginary Patreon. Yeah, imaginary it's imaginarypatreon.com yeah. forward slash imaginary movie podcast. <laughs> well, I'll set it up. I won't say no to free money. <laughs> yeah, but that requires somebody to give us some I'm, free money. I'm, I'm not above begging. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I'm, you know, it's necessary, you know. <laughs> um, but I think... If, if you got, is there anything in this And that's an that organic way of place to it, Almost, yeah. But is there anything in this film that we haven't touched on that anyone wants to sort of, like, get into... I think we've we've really gone round the horn on this one. Yeah, this is I think this has been this has been really interesting. I, I for me, no, I think we should maybe um let's have a look at the Bechdel test and then let's do offer some final final thoughts. So this this is an interesting one on the Bechdel test. We don't think it, it doesn't pass. We don't think it passes. However, if you Dave, if you could tell us the, the give us the, the the kind of what the Bechdel test is. Of course. Um so for anyone who hasn't listened to this before, uh, basically, the Bechdel test is a media metric applied to films and TV, uh, basically to assess how well represented female characters are. Um, so, to pass the Bechdel test, uh, a TV show or a film uh, has to have two named female identifying characters, and they have to have a conversation which is not about a man. Um, and that can that can be a one line exchange, but it's what seems like quite a low bar. It's not as low as you would think, and this surprisingly difficult. This fifty million dollar film does not pass it. Um, this two hour fifteen fifty exactly yeah. <laughs> uh, there are a few named female characters. Um, the mother is named, and the wife. Um, I'm sorry, we're reducing it down to naming them in by their roles, but for for the function of this, um, and I think a couple of the girlfriends are named. Um, you know, it's so uh, close. It's so, so close. So um, I've got the script up here, and 
there's a there's a scene where they're in the house and they're talking about um gifts i think it's a christmas or birthday or something christmas day yeah, yeah. and um so the, the 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 wife passes um ava passes the mother arena a a gift and she says ava this is too much and then and then ava replies <laughs> yuri likes to spoil you so it fail falls down there yeah and and, and wow, literally wow. if they just say we like to spoil you're you, welcome it would <laughs> you're <have> welcome <laughs> now, it's, it's interesting because we talk about this like as always it nearly passed but while the battle test is a pass fail i think it, it is quite a good metric well, I think to apply you guys could, i think you guys could put like you know uh, uh, you know a grade on it so like if they had done that, if she'd just had it, just said "you're welcome," yes, that would have been a D minus. It's a, it's it's still a pass, but it's a D minus. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. So it would have been an F. I think I think you could put you know, like a it would grade have been on it. like the lowest passing grade. Yeah, and we have done this in the past yeah. for a few films where um, I think when we did uh, when we did the pilot for Joey Ross, <clears throat> um, that does pass, but it passes because one of the female characters offers to buy the other one's hair. <laughs> <laughs> So Perfectly normal it's a conversation, pass, but it's not a totally empowering pass, you yeah. know. And I think yeah. I think it's the real it's the it's the flaw of the Bechdel test, which is that you know it's about it's not about it's not necessarily about measuring the representativeness of this movie in terms of having um, female identifying characters in there. What it actually is is it, it it's like what is the lowest possible bar that we could um, that we could set for a film to have literally any woman in it and then so it has to have a you know yeah. two female two named female characters that talk to each other not about a man i mean it it couldn't be any lower really could it yeah. um and i think the films where um you 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 are going to pass on are going to pass it through the roof because they're going to be films that just yeah. have lots of women in it. and actually to you know to have a little bit of self-criticism we should maybe try and watch more films like that that are going to evidently yeah. pass. I think we may, you know, we we're, we're obviously and if and if we are going to self criticize as well, maybe dudes. To be fair, I mean, yeah. it's, hard, it's hard to be woke. <laughs> I was going to say maybe if we are going to self criticize as well, maybe we make an effort to remember the female characters' names. Yes, <laughs> I said right, Ava. Ross. I said Ava. <laughs> uh, you did, to be fair. Uh, but what I would say though is is maybe something to think of as we go forward is is we'll still do the battle test, but maybe think about like. I think, I think agency, you should give it like a grading I think, score. Kind of. I think agency in terms of female characters is really important in films. Like, how much agency does a woman have? And how much does she... How What is, it, what is that character's ability to drive the plot? And in this film, it's a really bad score on that front, you know? Um, yeah. You know, this is, this is so a classic are, are example we, are we, of... Are we saying an F then on the Bechdel test? Yeah, this is a this is a fail and a, and a, and and you know and none of the characters really redeem it either for me. Yeah. Anyway. See me after class, Lord of War. <laughs> See me after class, Lord of War. Raise his eyebrow. So let's give us let's all let's go around the clock. Start with Ross. Um, you know, last last thoughts on this before we wrap up. Uh, last thoughts. Uh, quality movie in my opinion. Uh, uh, holds up after fifteen years. Uh, Nick Cage at his best and Ethan Hawke underrepresented Dave I agree um, I think this holds up really well I think it's a pretty good looking movie I think the soundtrack's alright as well I think I think the score to this is pretty good yeah. generally like you'll have a couple of, it's not amazing but you'll have a couple of moments during this film where you kind of go 
yeah, it's kind of like you know, it's got a real rhythm to it and 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 works really well. Um, and I think the cast generally is pretty great. I would have liked more Ethan Hawke, but you know, kind of everything. Yes, um, I agree. I agree on the music as well. There's some there's some really good songs and well used songs. I think there's a bit where they snort, snort cocaine. You've got Eric Clapton's Cocaine, yeah, in it, which mm-hmm. is so there's, there's some nice um, touches. I agree. I really enjoyed this. I've never seen it before, and I think it's a, a really smart, well made movie. Um, that has something to say you know obviously there's maybe some questions about how much it says but i'd rather watch this than you know the the generic hollywood version where the actor goes and, and massacres a village to save the day it's it's much more entertaining um in that sense of, of looking at it from the kind of the bad point of view yeah. so and i think it's interesting actually just as a final sort of thought here um that this is kind of this is a period piece of the 80s and 90s but before that was in vogue, before that was its own genre. Like, this film doesn't go to very great lengths to remind you the era we're in very much, which I think is quite nice. I think that's intentional. You know, it's not blasting out like, you know, Motown and (laughs) 80s slamming hits all the time. It's, you know, it's... I think that's that's intentional. There are some subtle, like, clues as to what era you're in, you know, like, throughout the movie. Oh, definitely. I mean, the fall of the the, the the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War is kind of like the biggest place marker in the world for this. But whereas I think the film made... one bit as well that was a bit subtle was when Nick Cage lands at his hotel that's paid for him and the the hotel staff are watching the TV and it's airing the O.J. Simpson case. (laughs) Yes. So about 95, is it, I think, then? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, ninety five so exactly. Pretty cool, but I think if this film had been made ten years later, it would be much more like if you remember Stranger Things, it would be much more like Season two of would, the Jersey Shore. Exactly it would be like screaming this era at you quite a lot, I think, in terms of how people dressed and what they're listening to and what they're driving and everything. He, he turn up and he turn up looking like Tommy Vassetti <laughs> in GTA in GTA Vice City, do you know what I mean? Like for the eighties scene and with the with the pink blazer and T shirt and stubble. I think we can pitch this to Netflix with Nicolas Cage at his current age, I should add. I think I think this could work. I like it. Well, yeah, I don't think we should air this podcast episode, guys, because I think we've just struck lightning here. <laughs> struck gold. Struck, struck gold? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the one. We're, we're not, about to be rich. But we're, not good at metaf- we're not good at metaphors, but what we are good at is writing <laughs> Nicolas Cage spin-offs based on GTA games. <laughs> And for more of that, listener, we look forward to welcoming you back next week where we'll uh, watch and talk about another movie. Yes, uh, so it's good night from me. And me. Uh, and me. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter using at ImaginaryPod. If you want to-